There's been a great deal of discussion of late about the health effects of the sugar that's in our diet, and it's about time in our opinion. Evidence has mounted for years that our national authorities on what is healthy were unduly swayed decades ago to minimize problems associated with dietary sugars. That idea has gotten fixed into the public mind. This resulted in no small degree from the lobbying efforts of the sugar industry. It is apparent that in a parallel fashion to the tobacco industry, every effort was made to show that the product was safe or at the very least of minimal risk. Writer Gary Tobbs is a former staff writer for Discover and correspondent for the journal Science. He has written and spoken extensively about this topic. His writings have appeared in The Atlantic, Esquire, Mother Jones, and The New York Times Magazine. Gary Tobbs has two previous books on the subject of obesity and diet. He joins us today to discuss his third, a prosecutor's brief on this subject, titled appropriately, The Case Against Sugar. We have quoted him on this program based on briefings in New Scientist and discussed at length his milestone article in Mother Jones. As a physician, I now shudder to think how my profession has evidently been barking up the wrong tree for a generation and a half when it comes to properly addressing the issues of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and other conditions described as Western diseases. It can scarcely be clear that since I graduated medical school in the 1980s, the battle against obesity and diabetes is being lost. Our fundamental assumptions about these conditions clearly needs to be challenged. We have new medications, true, and lots of them, but an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and there has been too little focus on prevention. The case against sugar makes a compelling case for a simple explanation for many of our health woes. Simple explanations are not always correct, but they often tend to be. We have a lot to discuss, and we're delighted to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Gary Taubes. Well, thank you for having me. Can we begin with a rather astounding statistic? You note that 50 years ago, one in eight Americans was obese. Today, the number stands at greater than one in three. Uh, as a doctor, I would say that we docs have not been getting people healthier over the past century, and I think you've actually been rather easy on us uh, in your book. Well, I go easy on you in this book, less so <laughs> in my previous one. Yeah, we embrace some ideas about the nature of a healthy diet and the nature of obesity itself that I think seem too obvious to question, and so nobody did. And, of course, you know, one of the reasons we have the scientific method is because a lot of things that seem obvious happen to be wrong. So what I did in these books, and this book in particular, is I took a kind of a historical perspective to look at both our understanding of the relationship between sugar and disease, and I, I focus primarily on diabetes. And then the role bad nutrition research played in this, and I certainly think the nutritionists were culpable, and then the role that the sugar industry also played, because they took advantage of the these bad science that was being done and used it to promote their own products. The diabetes issue, those numbers are even more startling than the obesity numbers, because if you by what the Centers for Disease Control are telling us alone, diabetes prevalence in the United States has increased 600 to 700 percent since the early 1960s. And you look around the world, and it's a chronic disease plague that's unprecedented. I mean, there are populations that 100 years ago Diabetes was uh, effectively unknown, and today one in two or one in four adults are diabetic. Um, I recently saw a study that uh, in Pakistan, one in four adults are diabetic. Palestinian wow. refugees, one in four adults are diabetic. 
um, Native American populations, First Nations people, there are some uh, populations where one and two are diabetic. And that's, again, go back in time to the 1930s, diabetes uh, was unnoticed in these communities, undiagnosed and apparently uh, not present. Well, let's go back in time. Back in the 20s and 30s, a lot of doctors in America saw a connection between increased sugar intake and diabetes. But instead of focusing on diet, turns out they focused instead on the fact that diabetics tend to be fat. And over the next few decades, the equation sort of worked out that it was, it was, there was just too many calories uh, in the diet, and that was blamed, rather than what people were actually eating. And that's the thinking that I take on in all my books. Uh, in this case, as you put, uh, described it, the chain of causality goes from uh, eating too much to obesity to diabetes, and this, again, has seemed uh, almost beyond question in this world. To question the idea that obesity is caused merely by eating too much is considered uh, challenging the laws of thermodynamics and de facto quackery, and people who do that, which up until very recently was the great bulk of the medical research community, were people who simply didn't understand. I, mean, I don't know, maybe they never took a freshman physics course. The argument that other, that this alternative hypothesis that was being proposed by primarily German and Austrian uh, clinical investigators who were doing far and away the best medical science of the pre-World War II era was that uh, obesity was clearly a hormonal regulatory disorder. You ask questions, why do men and women fatten differently? And the answer is, well, because hormones, in this case sex hormones, are determining whether they put on muscle or fat and where they put on fat. And so clearly this was a hormonal disorder. But in America, the show was being run by, by lean doctors, uh, puritanical physicians who were convinced that obese people just eat too much, that gluttony they had this kind of gluttony and sloth perspective. And as such, they, they explained diabetes the same way. They, they, it, it had to just be, in effect, eating too much. And even today, you'll see one of the primary causes. Assumption, assumed causes of diabetes is sedentary behavior. So if you were to be somebody who uh, if you didn't get enough exercise, that's a cause of diabetes. And, and the argument I'm making based on, again, the historical research as well as all the endocrinology done since the 1960s, this is a hormonal problem. And if it is, then it's the prime suspect for triggering it is the sugar in the diet. Something that seems to pop up a lot these days is the question of, of whether, uh, whether sugar is, is like a drug, something that is, that is addicting. It's debatable you know, where, at what point we can truly get addicted to something, but sugar certainly develops a habit uh, in us for ingesting it, wanting more. Um, and looking back in history, you note that this is the kind of thing that, that wars were fought over, empires were built, fortunes made or lost. Um, this, this is something you can't really say about other foodstuffs like corn. Does this not alone point to the idea that sugar is, is different than other things that we ingest? Well, and that's um, sort of the first two chapters of my book. The first is food or drug, where I'm discussing this research about whether or not the issue of whether or not uh, sugar is an addictive drug. And interestingly enough, very little research has been done on this because since the 1960s, in effect, to study the possibility that sugar was somehow uniquely uh, bad for us was to 
quackish. The NIH didn't fund that research. People didn't pursue it. And so there are only a few labs in the world that tried to establish whether sugar was addictive. Uh, they could only do the research in animals because it's unethical to, you know, for instance, give kids cocaine or heroin and then see if they prefer sugar. But they actually did this research in, in rats and mice, and, and it's clear that at least rodents prefer sugar to cocaine and actually prefer sugar to heroin, but it'll take them a few days to uh, make that decision. So after I discuss that, and the, the conclusion is, uh, I, I quote uh, a journalist historian whom I, I'm proud to consider a friend because he's so damn talented, but uh, a writer named Charles Mann, who in his book 1493 said, scientists debate amongst themselves whether sugar is an addictive substance or people just act like it is. And if you've got kids, if you're a parent, you don't really need a lot of scientific research to tell you that sugar has a hold over your children's brains and desires and cravings that no other food does. And we've always used it as a means to communicate love. You know, we're, we're going off to, to the grandparents' house for the Christmas holidays, and the grandparents' grandma is going to feed my kids sugar because that's what she does, and they love her for it. <laughs> But you can see this the other way the story is told. When again, I wanted people thinking in this sense when we get to the history of sugar, because sugar spread around the world. Um, basically, the message from 6,000 years ago when it shows up in, in Southeast Asia is if people will eat as much as they can afford, and they will commit virtually any sins against humanity in order to grow as much sugar as they could then consume. And, and the bulk of the slave trade was driven by the sugar industry. And growing and refining sugar is such a, uh, an awful, horrible job that you effectively can't pay people to do it. So the slave trade, uh, 20 million slaves taken from Africa, um, over the course of a couple hundred years, a great bulk of them lived and died uh, working on sugar plantations in the Caribbean. And sugar then spread around the world from there, very much the way a whole series of addictive drugs spread around the world that, that drove uh, international commerce in the 17th and 18th centuries. So not just sugar, but um, uh, coffee, beans, uh, rum, uh, opium, actually even cannabis was one of them. And when you read the history of these drugs, they're very similar to the history of sugar itself. Once the beet sugar industry comes around and we can start refining sugar in the northern hemisphere in the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, that's when this product goes from being a luxury, a very expensive luxury item, to basically something everyone can afford and all these industries kick up in the beginning in the 1840s, the candy industry, the chocolate industry, the ice cream industry, and then the soft drink industry in the 1870s, and diets just become permeated from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep with sugar, and it becomes sort of the food that is marketed to children primarily, and um, you know, children are arguably the most susceptible because, first of all, they're young and they're growing, but they're they're going to be consuming sugar for the longest period of time. So if it takes 20 or 30 or 40 years for chronic 
effects to manifest themselves, you start feeding it to kids when they're six months old, you'll see those effects a lot earlier. It's a kind of perfect storm of incredibly uh, intoxicating substance, whether it's addictive or not, and making sure that everyone in the world consumed it. And then our nutrition research community, public health authorities come in and kind of bless it as generally benign substance. And uh, the end result, I think, is the obesity, diabetes epidemics. Well, the great ally of the sugar industry has been this concept of energy balance, the argument taking in more calories than one burns causes obesity, and then from obesity we see diabetes. And they decided that a calorie is a calorie gained wide acceptance by the 60s. You had a rather brilliant quote in your book about that where a German scientist said that a positive energy balance was a pretty useless concept, kind of like saying the room gets crowded because more people enter than leave. It describes what happens but not why. It's not useful. Well, this is uh, one of the metaphors I use now to try and communicate this, is if instead of talking about why we get fat, we were talking about why we get rich, or why anyone gets rich. And the answer was, so you said to me, instead of saying, for instance, I don't know, why does that football player weigh 350 pounds? You said, why is Bill Gates worth $60 billion? And I said, because he makes more money than he spends you would throw me off your show. It's like, of course he makes more money than he spends. That's what it means. when you We can even say he's made $60 billion more than he spent. But why? How did he do it? What's the secret? Somebody weighs 300 pounds. Clearly they took in 300 pounds worth of energy more than they expended. But why? Why is it that they're in energy balance at 300 pounds and I'm in energy balance at 200 pounds and my brother is in energy balance at 170 pounds and, you know, my 12-year-old is in energy balance. Well, actually, my 12-year-old isn't in energy balance because he's growing. So this concept of energy balance is meaningless, and yet in the obesity research community, it was embraced back in 1900, 1910, back when the only thing they could measure about foods that seemed relevant to obesity was the caloric content. And back when the laws of thermodynamics were sort of newly discovered in physics and they were being talked up widely and researchers were busy showing that actually, you know, animate objects, humans and, and lab animals actually also follow the laws of thermodynamics. So it seemed perfectly natural. If all you could measure that seems relevant to obesity is the energy coming in in food and the energy that humans are expending, which they could do with devices called calorimeters that had been first created in Germany in the late 1860s, then you come up with a theory of obesity that's energy in and energy out. That's how science works. Basically, what you can measure determines the questions you could ask and the answers you can get. The problem is we locked into this energy in, energy out idea. And in 1921, the science of endocrinology starts to grow and become fertile with the discovery of the hormone insulin and then growth hormone a few years later. And researchers start saying, look, this looks like it's a hormonal problem. And the physicians are saying, no, 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 it's energy in, energy out calories. It's how much people eat. We know fat people eat a lot because we read about Falstaff and Shakespeare. What else do you have to know? I mean, it's incredibly naive, simplistic thinking. 
And not until 1960 do we have a technology that allows us to measure hormones in the bloodstream accurately, that allows us researchers to actually study the hormonal enzymatic regulation of our fat tissue, and it turns out to be very carefully regulated. But by that time, obesity science is dominated by psychiatrists and psychologists, literally, who are trying to figure out behavioral techniques to get fat people to stop eating so much. <laughs> so they're not interested. They're not endocrinologists. They're not interested in endocrinology, the science of hormones. Even though diabetes is intimately, so intimately related to obesity that some people consider them sort of two sides of the same coin. The term diabetes is often used. We know that diabetes is an insulin signaling disorder, both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, a common form. And the researchers in the 60s are learning that the hormone insulin actually basically, for all intents and purposes, regulates the amount of fat that your fat tissue is going to accumulate. Or that's the connection between what we eat and fat accumulation, because sex hormones also play a role and stress hormones play a role. Every hormone plays some role. But these researchers, they have their preconceived, their fixed idea, and they're not going to get off it. Their fixed idea is it's about calories, not about hormones. That's naive. We have a disorder of excess fat accumulation. One way you could look at it, of fat trapping and fat cells, and the science, the endocrinology, the hormones and enzymes that determine fat accumulation and that could cause this fat trapping condition are considered irrelevant to this the disorder because we know people just eat too much or they exercise too much. It's very interesting, Gary, to look back at this era when things when things did a flip. They were realizing that insulin was going to allow the sugar to get out of your bloodstream into cells. Also, it was going to, you know, make you fatter. It was recognized all along, and I certainly perpetuated this notion with patients that, you know, eating a low sugar diet would be helpful to you. And yet people didn't take the next step and, and say, well, you know, and this is something to do with the cause. And researchers really went against this in the 70s when, when fat was made public enemy number one. And that's what diverted us. So in the late, in the 50s, we started asking this question, geez, why do we have so much heart disease? Why are so many people dropping dead from heart attacks, particularly in the U.S. and a few European countries? So this is the question they're asking, and the answer they come up with is, well, it's a saturated fat in the diet, working through cholesterol, and that clogs our arteries, and again, a very simplistic hypothesis. And they start testing it, and the tests don't actually confirm the hypothesis, which is a problem, but every scientist knows you can get around that. Um, <laughs> the, Meanwhile, the British researchers are looking around the world, and they're asking a different question. They're asking this question, why is it obesity and diabetes epidemics explode in every population around the world that starts eating a Western diet? doesn't matter what their baseline diet is, how much saturated fat they were consuming, whether they were living on animal meat exclusively or, or seal and you know, whale meat and like the Inuit or whether they were agrarians. Boom, add a Western diet, get obesity and diabetes. So they said, you know, it's probably, it looks like the obvious suspect here is the sugar and the white flour in the diet. And so now we had competing hypotheses, and the competing proponents began to hate each other very quickly. And the American, the dietary fat hypothesis, one, not because the evidence actually came around to support it, but because 
most of the research funding was in the U.S. Most of the researchers were in the U.S. And the key researcher involved, a fellow named Ansel Keys, managed to ridicule the key British researcher pushing the sugar hypothesis, a guy named John Yudkin. And with this, the sugar industry stepped in to help this along because the sugar industry thought that they were being attacked unfairly by a fringe element of the nutrition community, the minority that were saying it's sugar. So they paid researchers in the majority to write articles reiterating that dietary fat is the problem, saturated fat causes heart disease, sugar is benign. And they paid uh, most notably uh, the head of the nutrition department at the Harvard School of Public Health, and then they had this fellow Ansel Keys and his colleagues at the University of Minnesota writing these articles as well, although probably for free. And by the 1980s, despite the dietary fat hypothesis failing time and time again to be confirmed in these experiments, the sugar hypothesis had been sort of swept away out of sight. And in the 1980s, as government report after government report launched this kind of low-fat-is-good-health dietary dogma that we're living with. And our government asked industries to produce low-fat products, like thousands of new low-fat products a year, so we could all avoid heart disease by eating low-fat diets. The industry had a problem. We were also saying salt causes hypertension. So we're, the industry is being told, take the fat out, take the salt out. So now how do you produce a product that tastes good? A classic example is yogurt. Take out the fat and you're left with this insipid, watery stuff. <laughs> so you add back some fruit and some sugar in the form of high fructose corn syrup, which had conveniently come along in the late 70s and nobody actually realized it was just sugar by another name. And now you're marketing products like these these low-fat, you know, fruity yogurts that, 30 or 50 percent of the calories come from sugar, and you're selling them as heart-healthy diet foods. And we're eating them. And sugar consumption continues to climb throughout this period. Actually, it's unprecedented climb from 1984 to 1999 when it finally peaks with our awareness that we have a diabetes, bone obesity epidemic on our hands. So had the research community done their job, had they not gotten hooked on this energy balance conception, had they not decided saturated fat was deadly before they'd actually done the research, um, none of this might have happened. And they wouldn't have given the sugar industry the opportunity to employ them as allies in fighting off what, you know, again, at least, I can make a compelling argument, I think, is, is should be the prime suspect for all these diseases. Well, I think that you're you're right, Gary, to focus on the industry and, and their, their money thrown at research, their PR efforts. Um, in, in a parallel fashion, it could scarcely be more obvious that sugar has been known to have a bad effect on, on, on the teeth, human teeth, for, for thousands of years. Uh, and yet the industry has stepped in and, and said, well, yeah, the other stuff's bad too. Starch is also bad. And as a result, dentists have not gotten on board uh, in efforts to control sweets either. There was always a way to get around any inconvenient evidence. And it is true. Uh, white flour may be as bad for your teeth as sugar is. The thing that got me is even today with the 
fashionable interest in the scientific community and our gut biomes and the microbes that live in our guts, and some people would like to link them to every chronic disease, and it could be true. I think that science is 20 years away from knowing. And so they talk about gut dysbiosis, and you could see that the guts of people eating Western diets are very different than the guts of populations that are isolated enough that they're still eating their traditional diets. So then what they do is they ask, what could it possibly be? So we know that dysbiosis in the mouth, bacteria in the mouth, will grow out of control when you feed sugar and white flour. It's a logical assumption that if the same thing that's causing dysbiosis in the mouth is going to cause it in the gut, and so we should be looking at white flour as a cause, and instead you have some people saying, well, it's eating all that red meat that causes gut dysbiosis, or it's eating artificial sweeteners that causes gut dysbiosis. And maybe because I have a physics degree, an undergraduate physics degree, and I spent way too much time reading histories and philosophy of science books, I'm very fond of the concept of Occam's razor. And Occam's razor basically says don't multiply hypotheses beyond necessity. So, you know, police detectives are actually fond of Occam's razor. They have five murders in a city and the modus operandi is the same in all five. They're going to start with the hypothesis that they were all done by the same person. If it's clear that one person only committed two of them, but it's also clear that he, he or she didn't commit the other three, then they'll complicate the hypothesis and say maybe it's two people. So here you have this whole slew of chronic diseases that are linked, for instance, to uh, Western diets, and they include diseases that are very clearly caused by sugar and white flour, which are, you know, the obvious one is, cal- is cavities, dental caries. Why not assume that they all are until that hypothesis no longer works? And again, it's just not how the scientific community thinks. In this field, they like to, to say, well, these are multifactorial complex problems, and therefore they have multiple causes. So dietary fat causes heart disease, and and the salt in the diet causes uh, strokes and hypertension, and it's alcohol that causes gout, and it's sedentary behavior and eating too much of everything that causes obesity, and maybe something else is caused by not eating enough fruits and vegetables. And all these diseases are linked together both in patients and populations. Why don't we start from the assumption that they're all caused by the same thing and only reject that hypothesis if the evidence forces us to? And again, that's the argument I'm making in this book. Well, Gary, I think that if people get a copy of The Case Against Sugar, and I strongly urge everyone to do so, they're going to bring back a verdict of guilty as charged. Uh, the question, my final question for the day is like, okay, we assume that it, we've got to get it out of our diet. How do you do that? Sugar's in virtually every processed food, sometimes to make it sweeter, sometimes it's a preservative. It's got it for mouthfeel, for texture. It's got dozens of uses. It's extraordinarily useful food. But you can get rid of most of it by staying away from sugary beverages and fruit juices also, which you could think of in sort of my world as, sugary beverages with vitamins added or attached. Um, and the, the obvious sources, we all feel guilty when we eat and we all try to ration the, the, the candies, the pastries, the ice creams, the desserts. I mean, we all know we're supposed to ration those. The argument I'm making is that rationing might not be enough, that there might, the concept of moderation is, I believe, a, a, a failed concept. It doesn't, it doesn't have any real meaning. 
if you're predisposed to get obese or, and or diabetic. It helps that I was a cigarette smoker in my youth, so I, I realized that I can't smoke cigarettes in moderation, even if I believed by doing so I might avoid getting lung cancer. Right. And I think many people can't consume sugar in moderation, even if that might help them avoid diabetes or obesity or hypertension or heart disease, the whole slew. So um, I think you can get rid of the obvious sources, and I, I think that's the first step to eating a healthy diet is getting rid of you know, the obvious sources of sugar. And then virtually every major dietary guru will tell you to avoid processed foods. And if you do that, you're going to avoid much of the rest of the sugar. Um, I know that's hard to do. It's, we're always being told to cook for ourselves and who has time. Right. Those would be the first steps to health. We've been speaking with Gary Tobbs about his most recent book, The Case Against Sugar. We highly recommend it and suggest that you get a copy. Before you go, Gary, can you recommend some websites uh, that might be out there for more information? Well, my website, which I don't keep up as much as I should, is GaryTobbs.com. The world is full now of some very good uh, low-carb paleo websites. So these ideas, the low-carb diet, the paleo diet, they're all basically diets that say stay away from sugar and refined flour. Don't worry about the fat you consume. For people who are really interested, those are there's a, a terrific site out of Sweden called dietdoctor.com. That, that's an amazing source of information on this kind of uh, way to eat. Well, Gary, thank you for speaking with us, and I hope this will be not be your last visit. Uh, you're doing some great work out there, and we're going to do what we can to support it. Well, thank you. It's been terrific. All right. That does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we look forward to seeing you in 2018.